Welcome to the Jessamine County Public Library's self-guided audio tour of Locust Grove Cemetery, which is located on State Highway 169 in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Carrie Green. On this tour, you'll visit the graves of former community members and learn their stories. You'll also hear memories from some of their living relatives. Allow approximately one hour to complete the tour. We recommend pausing the recording as you walk between graves. Please observe the following guidelines. Allow yourself enough time to complete the tour before sundown. Do not take the tour when it's dark. Please watch your step. The ground is uneven and some of the headstones are flush with the earth. Do not lean on the headstones. Please be respectful. The people who are buried here have living relatives who visit their graves. We will begin the tour at the top of the entrance driveway. As you face the cemetery from the road, it's the driveway on the left. According to Frank Cannon Jr., who was on the Locust Grove Cemetery Board, African Americans have been buried in Locust Grove Cemetery since the mid to late 1800s. The oldest headstone listed in Howard Teeter's book, Family Cemeteries, belongs to America Combs, who died in 1890. However, as Mr. Cannon told us, Many of the older graves in the cemetery no longer have markers. And a lot of the markers you just can't find them because they're uh, somewhere just a, a, a rock a marker put down. Uh, others, where there were tombs somewhere, they've fallen down. Mm -hmm. uh, you cannot find them. Somewhere may have been marked with some other means. Mm -hmm. You start digging in there, you're going to dig up bones. Uh, at the time, they did not use vaults to put them in or concrete boxes. Just have the wooden casket put down in the grave, and that's that stuff rots out. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result, the grave's sent down. That's the only way we can find them now, because you got little where graves are, are sunk down, so we know there is a grave. Who's there? I don't know. Mm -hmm. We do know there is a grave there. Mm -hmm. uh, you have good family members that uh, would know where someone is buried and who's buried next to them or in, in relation to where their graves are there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not an easy job. Right. Yeah. While all cemeteries contain important historical and genealogical information, the facts inscribed on surviving tombstones in African American cemeteries may not be available anywhere else. As Nadia Orton writes on savingplaces.org, quote, headstones may carry the names of little known yet influential figures whose voices have been left out of the historical record, unquote. Number one, Andrew McAfee. As you face the cemetery, McAfee's headstone is the first one on the left. Andrew McAfee was born in 1862 and died in 1937. 
He was the first African-American council member in Jessamine County. He represented District 2 in 1898. In A History of Jessamine County, Kentucky, from its earliest settlement to 1898, Bennett Henderson Young praises McAfee's conduct and character and says that McAfee's energy and determination inspired the confidence and trust of his constituents. McAfee was educated in Jessamine County's African-American schools and worked as a hotel cook. He was the son of James and Ellen Tapp McAfee. They are included along with seven other family members in the 1870 census of Jessamine County. Number two, George Combs. Walk to the third row down and slightly to the left from McAfee's headstone until you see George Combs's large headstone. George Combs was born in 1881 to Harriet and Isaac Combs. He died in 1923. He owned a grocery store and coal yard on the corner of York and Chestnut Streets. He also owned Combs Brothers Undertaking, a business that employed his brothers Charlie and Theodore. In 1920, Combs became the second African-American to be elected to the Nicholasville City Council, representing the African-American community called Herveytown. According to a 1920 article in The Crisis, the Republican Combs, quote, won by a large majority over his white Democratic opponent, unquote. Combs's wife, Lula Claiborne, was a teacher. They had a daughter, Christine, who also became a teacher after graduating from Fisk University. Number three, Annabelle Holloway Jackman. Cross the driveway and walk down a couple of rows toward the rear of the cemetery until you see a rounded, illegible headstone standing by itself. Head to your right and stop when you see Orabel and Frank R. Cannon Sr.'s headstone. According to Juanita White, the unmarked grave between the Cannons and Nellie Claiborne belongs to her mother. My mother was born September the 4th. 1912, and she passed away May the 7th, 1985. My mother was born in Kent County, Covington. Very warm, very caring person, very, very loving. If you needed food, she would cook for you or let you have what it is that she had. Um, you didn't have much money back in the day, but she offered to sit with children if parents had to go somewhere um, very church-going, just an all-around, you know, good person. But her mother passed away at, at an early age, so she was raised by her father. Mm -hmm. And she had a brother. It was just the two of them. Her dad brought her here because of 
the the job search was better. He he worked in a machine factory, mm-hmm. and he would take the bus to Lexington. And my mom stayed with a elderly woman they called Grandma. Mm-hmm. Um, Grandma was old in her way. She kind of looked like Granny Clampett. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a picture of her. Um, she raised my mother, and somewhere along the way, she met my, my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was like 18 years old, and he wasn't too much younger. I think she was older than him. Mm-hmm. So they lived here in Jessamine County, um, got married, and had a family. When she and my dad, Robert Duncan Jackman, got married, they had six children. Two boys, four girls. She worked for two women here in town mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, a Miss Cole, who had a coal paint store on Main Street, which is now Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. She worked with a Miss Catherine Duncan, whose husband at the time was part owner of Mars and De Spain, which was an equipment place. Up on the highway as you come into Jasmine County, it's something called Coy now. Mm-hmm. She would clean house a couple of days a week for one or the other lady, and she got to know the family, the Duncan family, really well. She babysit mm-hmm. a set of twins that belonged to the the Duncan woman, and she got to know them. The twins was Frey Arvin and Frey Zan. To this day, they think of her fondly. My mother was a wonderful cook. Mm-hmm. I wished I had stayed in the kitchen <laughs> while she cooked. She made the best blackberry cobbler. Mm-hmm. My mother had a had friends, Miss Rena Smith, and Miss Rena moved to the city. She calls it from the farm because it was closer. Her husband wasn't really well, and he couldn't work the farm, so they kept the farm a little longer. And she moved to town, but she had garden out there. Tomatoes, mm-hmm. green beans, apples, berries, potatoes. My mother learned how to can. Mm-hmm. She helped her. <laughs> to this day, I can't even look at a tomato. <laughs> <laughs> she made tomato juice. She put up <laughs> tomatoes. She put up green beans. She put up corn. She put up cabbage. And somehow we put a sheet on the roof, got somebody to go up there and put a sheet on, and she sliced apples and dried apples. She made fried pies. Mm -hmm. You have never tasted anything so good. That sounds really good. What, how did, do you know how she made them? Well, she made the crust, which was a biscuit crust, and then she would um, put the apples in a skillet with some butter, some, um, some cinnamon, sugar. I didn't use brown sugar back then. And she would make sure that they were nice and plump, you know, and she would take them out. She put the dough in the oven to uh, to bake it and take it out, put the apples in it, fold it over, and put it back in the oven. She wanted the dough to get just a little bit done. Mm-hmm. And we fight over, <laughs> <laughs> but 
we, my mother taught us never to make fun of anybody, never to laugh at anybody's problems, never to, never to do anything that they'd want somebody to do to us. Mm -hmm. So all in all, we kept that, you know, um, she surrounded us with love and patience and faith that um, my nieces and nephews know the things that grandma, that's what they call her, taught them and they pass it, play it forward. Number four, Frank R. Cannon Sr. And number five, Orabel Hamilton Cannon. Now turn to Frank Cannon Sr. and Orabel Cannon's graves. Frank R. Cannon Sr. was born in Jessamine County in 1913 and died in 1988. He graduated from high school in Nicholasville and earned an A.B. degree from Kentucky State University. He was one of the first graduate students to integrate the University of Kentucky. He earned a Master's of Education there. He later completed postgraduate work at the Tuskegee Institute and at Atlanta University. Cannon served as principal of Rosenwald Dunbar School. He was the first African-American member of the Jessamine County Board of Education. He left Jessamine County to work as a principal and superintendent of the Lincoln Heights School System in Ohio. He taught in the Cincinnati School System before returning to Central Kentucky, where he served as director of the Head Start program in Lexington, Fayette County. Frank Cannon Jr. talked to us about his father's role in the community. After being a school teacher and principal of the uh, school at that time, he was uh, well known here in Nicholasville. Mm -hmm. And after he retired from teaching, he also was in the uh, Retired Teachers Association mm -hmm. here in Jessamine County, Jessamine County Retired Teachers Association. He was active in that on up until he passed. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was uh, pretty much into the public uh, view as far as being well known in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, he had a repair shop which drew in customers from all over. Uh, Fayette, Jessamine County, mm -hmm. so he got to be known in that way also. When I retired from service in 1980, I came back home here and then I worked with him in the shop. Uh, he owned the shop. Mm -hmm. I worked in there until he passed and after he, he pa his passing, then I continued to run the shop until uh, around 90, 91, somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. And what was it like um, working with your father? Very, very, very good. Uh, we trained several other mechanics. We also had uh, the real, uh, the, I think it was the FFA or FHA, uh, where kids come to school, mm -hmm. uh, gave them a course during the winter time on engine repair for, for the lawnmowers or whatever they had. They would uh, come to the shop every uh, week and if they didn't have an engine to work on, we gave them one because we had, had plenty of them in the uh -huh. <laughs> where we uh, completely tore it down, all the way down to nothing, built it back up, and then pulled the starter open and started. And that was uh, very rewarding to us as well as to the kids. We had 
a couple of uh, kids that uh, took first place in the state uh, mm -hmm. competitions, uh, of which one was a girl. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and what, about what year was that? It had to have been in uh, maybe 83, 84, somewhere like mm -hmm. that. That's yeah. great. So your dad was teaching even after he'd retired. After he retired, you never get you never give up teaching. Yeah. Did he ever tell you any stories about his teaching career? No, because I went to school under him. Oh, did so, you? Yeah. So what was that like? Uh, very, <laughs> to me, very restrictive. <laughs> Things I wanted to do, I couldn't. I, I couldn't do because of status there. Uh huh. Uh, Teachers, you know, they were, at that time, the teacher had a very good interest in the students. Mm -hmm. And one of my teachers, she corrected me several times, let me know that I could not do that because my father was the principal, and <laughs> that was certainly a bad example for other students. Right. So it was kind of restrict, <laughs> but it was very nice. Uh, it was very strict, very, mm -hmm. uh, as far as discipline goes. Mm -hmm. A very good teacher. Uh, in college, he majored in math and history so that was his his strong parts and mm -hmm. he uh, taught that uh, history uh, math science during the summer time he was raising tobacco uh, worked with another contractor brown sebastian in concrete during the summer uh, he also went up to uh, new york as a supervisor there in one of the factories during the summertime mm -hmm. because at that time they only paid teachers nine months out of the year Mm -hmm. So he had to do something for the other two or two and a half months. Right. So he did that. Uh, at one time, he was sharecropping on, on uh, three other farms. Wow. In addition to raising on the farm where we still live at now, the home farm. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, taught us the value of not being lazy, but to actually get out and do stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, at home on the farm area, we had, uh, once again, typical farm with cattle and uh, your uh, poultry, uh, the uh, chickens, geese, ducks, guineas, what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, cattle that we had to take care of during the winter and summer. That was my brother and I's job to do that. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, something that we did every morning. This time of the year, uh, before my father took over his principal, he was also driving school bus. Oh, wow. So he would, yes, he, he kept busy. <laughs> Sounds like and it. Grab the school bus and uh, pick us up. If, if you weren't out there, we had to walk to school a couple of times <laughs> because uh, he said I'd be by seven twenty-six. If you were out there at seven twenty-seven, you were late. Oh wow! And you walked. <laughs> and we, had to walk, so we, uh, we got that. Uh, I guess that's some of the memories that we remember because mm -hmm. it's a long walk from home to school, about four miles, a little four miles. Yeah, I guess you learned your lesson. <laughs> Very good. Frank Cannon Sr.'s wife, Orabel Hamilton Cannon, is buried next to him. She was born in 1911 and died in 1998. Frank Cannon Jr. shared some of his memories about his mother and her own teaching career. She's from Breckenridge County. Mm -hmm. in Western Kentucky. Uh, she met my father down in Kentucky State. And then uh, they got married uh, when he finished college in 36. And then she taught school, uh, a little school called Little Zion out on Catnipill Road. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember her teaching there. She also 
uh, the, uh, drove school bus to pick up kids at that area there. Mm -hmm. The one room school from first through the sixth grades. So one teacher, and that was her. Wow. <laughs> uh, her school bus at that time was no uh, 1937 forward bread wagon. Well, that was a little bit better than what we had. Uh, the bus that my father drove at that time was a 1937 ambulance. Oh, wow. And they hadn't even, did not even paint it yellow. It was still black. <laughs> <laughs> had a board down one side and board down the other side. And it so, oh, okay. that school, that her school bus, same thing, that little panel truck, they call them bread wagons. Uh -huh. uh, board down each side, but she would drive the school bus, pick up kids, and teach, and then in the evening time, take them all back home. Wow. And then when the integrated schools are consolidated, rather, before integration, saw consolidated schools, mm -hmm. they did away with all these little outlying one room schools, as you have, where they had one or two teachers, and they brought them all into Nicholasville mm -hmm. to the uh, uh, to, to the high schools that were here. Then, of course, when integration uh, came along in the early late fifties, then they started doing away with a lot of the other schools. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother wound up teaching over to Wilmore during her final years before she retired. Uh, taught the Wilmore Elementary School, mm -hmm. uh, and the, I think it was the either second or fourth grade. She taught both grades over there. Mm -hmm. that's, her, that's when she retired from there. So you didn't go to the same school that your mother taught at? No, she taught no. at a different I went, school? I went strictly to Nicholasville. I went to the, at that time it was called Rosemont Dunbar uh, at the end of Chestnut Street, mm -hmm. the, the buildings there. It was enough to have my father as a teacher. I, I, knew, I, knew, I didn't even know both of my father's teacher. All of them taught us when we got back home, though. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and did you have any any favorite memories of your mother that you wanted to share? Oh, uh, she was once again a very caring uh, person, uh, quiet, uh, took interest in her students. If a student didn't learn, then she took extra time out for that particular student to to help them out. Uh, she'd bring her work home at night, take it back in the morning time, and then. Uh, discuss what she could do to get a student to learn. Mm -hmm. Some students, uh, you, you cannot get through to them. You just, uh, you just can't. Uh, sometimes it's a personality. Sometimes it's your voice. Sometimes it's the student just doesn't want to learn. But she tried to reach every student that she could to mm -hmm. make sure that student learned uh, when, they, when she got out of, out, out of her class. What they did in the next class, I don't know. But when she had them, she wanted to make sure of that. The other thing was she was a very Christian lady also. Uh, made sure that my brother and I, we stayed out all night. We got up Sunday morning and went to church. <laughs> I don't care what you were like when you came in. <laughs> uh, very nice. Mm -hmm. Frank Cannon Sr.'s parents, Lizzie Brent Chef Davis Cannon and Simon Cannon, are also buried in Locust Grove. Number six, Lizzie Cannon. Walk back up toward the road, six rows, and head toward the exit driveway on your left. Lizzie Cannon's grave is almost to the exit driveway. Her headstone faces the road.
Frank Cannon Jr. talked to us about his grandmother, who was born in 1870 and died in 1965. She was uh, born in Scott County, uh, over around around Leesburg, uh, in Mulatto. Uh, She was the oldest of 12. She had 11 brothers. She was the only female uh, in that. She uh, was married the first time. I had uh, three children by the first marriage, and then she married my father's uh, father mm-hmm. and had, I think, uh, six or seven, something like that. And some were died uh, while they were young. And uh, when they came to Jessamine County, they lived out here on Nicholasville Road, bought a place out here on Nicholasville Road. At that time, it was called the uh, Nicholasville Lexington Turnpike. And the place they bought uh, right now, I think, would be probably about where Tractor Supply is. It used to be, uh, that's where the old Walmarts used to be down there. That was the was place that we owned it first. And then later, uh, bought up where, where we live at now. Mm-hmm. But uh, she uh, was basically self-educated. Uh, learned to read, write. Um, she worked as strictly as a as a housewife. Mm-hmm. She never never had a job where she walked away from home. Mm-hmm. Everything that she had was right there. Uh, she raised up my father, his sister, and uh, all of them. Well, in fact, all the children she raised up there. We always called her mama because she was in the house when I was born there. Uh, she very quiet, mm-hmm. uh, soft-spoken. Uh, did a lot of sewing, cooking. Um, it was a time when you made clothes. You didn't go, didn't go to the store and buy them. You made them. Mm-hmm. And most of that, she she made did a lot of uh, she did a lot of sewing, quilting, just for what housewives normally do, mm-hmm. especially when you're raising children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, some of the fondest memories I have of her there. Frank Cannon Jr.'s sister, Dr. Clarice Boswell, wrote a book about their grandmother called Lizzie's Story, A Slave Family's Journey to Freedom, which describes Lizzie's life as well as Lizzie's mother's life as a slave. You can read more about Lizzie, her quilts, and the family's struggle for freedom in Dr. Boswell's book, which is available for checkout at the Jessamine County Public Library. Number seven, Emma Jean Gwen Miller. From Lizzie Cannon's grave, cross the exit driveway, which is to your right as you face the cemetery. Walk down four rows toward the rear of the cemetery. Turn right and stop when you see the large rose-colored stone with Miller engraved on the side facing the road. The names Emma Gwen and William T. are engraved on the other side of the stone.
Eugene Gwen Miller died in 2009 at the age of 107. She was born in Woodford County in 1901 and moved with her family to Nicholasville in 1902. Miller graduated from Russell High School in Lexington because the African American school in Nicholasville only had eight grades. Her mother, who earned $4.50 a week as a domestic, and the Bethel AME Church in Nicholasville helped finance her education. After earning her teaching certificate from Turner Normal School in Shelbyville, Tennessee, Miller began teaching in Nicholasville in 1922 in a one-room schoolhouse. She later studied at Wilberforce, Tennessee State, Atlanta University, the University of Kentucky, and Kentucky State College. She taught school for more than 40 years. In an article by Merlene Davis that appeared in the Lexington Herald-Leader, Miller's former students remembered her fondly. Sarah Newby, who became a teacher herself, attended Miller's 1942 class at Rosenwald Dunbar School in Nicholasville. She said that Miller kept a mailbox on her desk. Quote, we all took pride in writing her letters nice letters, and she would read them on Friday, Newby said. It was so much fun seeing the expression on her face when she read the letters, unquote. Others, such as Hestella White, remembered her kindness toward her students. White said, quote, I didn't find out re until recently that she made sure children had lunches. She would see to it that they had some clothes, unquote. Miller took care of friends and family as well, buying a home for her mother and other relatives. Although she and her husband, William Miller, did not have children, they cared for several children, including her niece, Norma Jenkins. Jenkins remembered her aunt as being, quote, very loving and very giving. If anyone needed something, they could come to her, and she didn't worry about getting it back, unquote. In addition to the article and the Herald-Leader, Miller's death was also remembered in the United States Senate's congressional record. Number 8, Dorothy L. Smith From Miller's grave, turn away from the road and walk down nine rows toward the rear of the cemetery. Turn right and walk almost all the way to the fence where you will find the headstones for Dorothy Smith and her son, Andrew Philip Smith. Their headstones are flush with the ground. Dorothy L. Smith was born in 1930 and died in 2013. She was the mother of 12 children. At the time of her death, she had 24 grandchildren and 17 great-grandchildren. Jennifer Smith spoke to us about her mother by phone from her home in Michigan. We had a wonderful mother and I really loved her and she loved us and that was the biggest part of the joy of her 
loving us, really loving us and caring for us. She not only was my mother, I looked at her as my friend and my confidant because whenever I talked to her about anything, if I asked her not to say anything to anyone, she wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And um, she always had this saying when we did share stuff with her, one of her favorite words would always be, well, because <laughs> she didn't have no other words. <laughs> and um, then sometimes if we shared something with her or she knew something and it called, catch her off guard, she would just say, now. And we used to laugh about that all the time because of the one word. And one of my sisters had told her, you done dug that well so deep, we're all going to fall in it. <laughs> Anna Kenyon spoke to us about some of the challenges her mother faced while raising her family in Nicholasville. Growing up in that Porsche poverty area that meant that we had no running water but she would pack that water to make sure that old washing machine was washing those clothes she hung them out on the line to dry and um, like I said she just made do with trying to feed all these kids she was responsible for she would get up before we go to school and make sure we had breakfast before we went out the door she did not send us out the door hungry um, and she would fix our lunches. So, you know, that right there, yeah, she cared for us. And that way, when she her health started declining, she lived with my older sister, Brenda, and in her bedroom, my sister had um, a picture of Jesus on the wall, and she would look at it every day because it was in her eye gate. Mm-hmm. And as she starts start really slowing down, and we knew, she starts saying, I'm ready to go home. And we were saying, Mom, you are home. She goes, no, I'm ready to go home with him. And that just blessed us because she recognized and she said, he told me to come on. It took us a little bit to realize that she was talking about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that prepared us, you know, to know. And that right there was heartfelt, heartwarming, because she said, he said, come on, and I'm ready to go home. So we was prepared and accept that. So the day that she took her last breath, she was smiling. At her home-going service, a lot of people got... um not even just at home-going service, but her home-going service was just a great celebration because um, having that many children and being married. And to my father, who was, you know, he was loving and everything, but um, he um, ended up going legally blind. And so when you're talking about having to deal with, you know, a man who feels like he wasn't a man at times because he couldn't provide for his family when he had to go on disability and, you know, and, and helping him to and care for his needs of helping him to see the things that he could not see and, and just deal with his whole emotional state. Mm -hmm. Um, She was just a a very strong lady. 
uh, but who had enough love that she showed. She never took her frustrations and, and life circumstances out on anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was just a true model of the virtuous woman uh, in the Bible that we know that we read so much about. And that's what we put on her her casket, you know, inside, you know, that was lifted up was, uh, you know, that she was a virtuous woman, you know, who uh, sacrificed a lot of her um, things that she, you know, probably missed out on for the love of others because her life spoke very powerful and a great volume of what L-O-V-E was, you know, and that goes a long way. Number nine, Andrew Thomas Applesmith. Walk back towards the road for two rows and turn to your right until you see Andrew Thomas Smith's grave. It is also flush with the ground. Andrew Thomas Smith was born in 1930 and died in 1993. Anna Kenyon told us more about her father's life. He was a man who um, is very, was very well known in the community as um, the, the the deacon, the elder who prayed long prayers, <laughs> and uh, and he could sing, you know. And that's the fond memory I I have of him would be in the middle of the night hearing him at two or three o'clock in the morning singing praises unto God, you know. But he and in between of the coughs and that he was experiencing because he had uh, also developed um, emphysema. And so there was times that he would be coughing, you know, so profusely, and I would be praying to God, please let him breathe, let him breathe. And then he would burst out in a song, you know. And so that was a comfort for me to hear him uh, singing those praise songs um, throughout his life. And then, again, as I alluded to earlier, um, about when he became blind, uh, that Felt that feeling of being your manhood being stripped. He still stuck it out with all his kids. You know, he he uh, um, made sure they went to church together. You know, um, one of the funny things I remember of him is that um, we never owned a car. Uh, like I said, we grew up in the pov- the the most poorest part, not in the most poorest, but but in the city down on Jefferson Street, and they called it the bottom for a reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my parents always had to depend on um, other people giving them a ride to the grocery store or to church or wherever. And I never forget, Dad came home one day, and he pulled up in this little white car. And we was like, well, my dad never seen him drive before. But uh, he's like, come on, get in. This I got a car, and we're going to take a ride. <laughs> we got as far as at the top of the hill of East Maple Street, <laughs> and the car stopped working. Oh, no. And so we had to walk home. <laughs> and so that, that, you know, it was like, and that was a lot. We had the car for one day. <laughs> That I remember, but uh, I do uh, remember him being uh, still committed to, um, um, you know, being that godly man that he was trying. And he hadn't always been there. I, before I was born, he, you know, into some things, you know, that was not, you know, appropriate. But then he became, you know, totally committed to God. And, and so I'm glad I got to know him on the sweet side. You know, I tried to get him to... Uh, 
um, get involved with the Kentucky Department of the Blind to go down to learn, you know, some new skills that um, will help him mm-hmm. adapt daily. Uh, but he was just kind of set in his ways and did not want to leave his home. Mm-hmm. And so we just tried to teach him what, you know, we could to help him. You know, like, for example, w- uh, with the plate, we know that the 12 o'clock one, and like the cl- on the clock, and I would say to him, Dad, your mashed potatoes are at 2 o'clock. You know, your uh, green beans are at 5 o'clock, you know, and, and that kind of, mm-hmm. those little small things. And mm-hmm. uh, and then he also received uh, their cassettes. Back then it was cassettes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to um, hear the Word of God. So it was a lot, the, he would get the Bible on the cassettes, and mm-hmm. so that would still help him to uh, get the Word, you know, even though he couldn't no longer read it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they were committed to each other, and they were committed to family. And for that, I am awesomely blessed. Number 10, Joe Pillman. Now head back toward the center section of the cemetery and cross the driveway. Walk down four rows toward the rear of the cemetery until you see the first row of graves that is parallel with a small tree. Turn left at Emma West's headstone and stop when you find Joe Pellman's headstone. It is a black stone with a picture of him engraved on it. Joseph Dreamer Pellman was born in 1890 and died in 1976. He was not quite five feet tall, usually dressed in ragged clothing, often followed by a homeless dog or two, and earned a living doing odd jobs and pushing carts of junk to the dump. But he was still a prince in Nicholasville for most of his 85 years. Joe was well known throughout the community for his claim that he was descended from either Indian or Ethiopian royalty calling himself the Prince of India or the Prince of Abyssinia. His sister, Vicey Henry, said that he was born in Lincoln County, Kentucky, and that the family moved to Nicholasville when Joe was 11 years old. Still, no one minded going along with Joe's colorful story. Joe's sister said that he was an avid reader who kept a lot of books and magazines around the house. Although he did attend the Herveytown School for a short time, his ability to read and write was mostly self-taught. According to Harold Higgs, Joe would often stop with his cart outside the Higgs residence on 3rd Street to rest and read. Mr. Higgs also said that Joe ordered books from Africa, which lent some credibility to his claim of being from Ethiopia. People who knew Joe said he was a friendly, gentle man who was kind to children and animals and loved to tell stories. At two points in his life, he was accused of wrongdoing and even put in jail for a couple of days. People of the community interceded on Joe's behalf, insisting he simply wasn't capable of the crimes. He was acquitted. Joe's death was sadly ironic. After hauling trash for so many years, he was killed by a garbage truck. He had sat down on the bumper of the truck to rest. 
The driver didn't see him and accidentally ran over him. Joe lived with his mother until she died in 1950, and then with his sister until his death in 1976. He had lived from hand to mouth, and his relatives had little money to bury him. His original gravestone was nothing more than a concrete fence cap engraved and painted black. Then a Facebook group called You Grew Up in Jessamine County If posted an old photograph of Joe. Of all the characters discussed on the page, Joe Pellman brought up the most memories and comments. Eventually, the group initiated a fundraiser to get Joe a different headstone. 83 donors from 11 states gave $2,800 towards the stone you see now. This concludes the Locust Grove Audio Tour and Oral History Podcast. Thank you for listening. We produced this podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. For more information on the Locust Grove Oral History Project, including a list of our sources, visit our website at jesspublive.org forward slash locust hyphen grove. Our theme music is by Scott Whitten. You can find out more about Scott on his website, adoreforadesk.com. Mm-hmm.